Good morning, everyone. Please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 5 today, today, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. In your Nova Community Church app, there's a Bible there. You could turn that. Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1 and go to verse 19 today. In our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, we have made it through four chapters so far. And it's been an incredible series for us to go through together. I know for me personally, the Lord has been raising an awareness of lost and broken and hurting people more and more. And in the first week in our series, we see Nehemiah who was moved with compassion and empathy because of the destruction of the protective walls that were surrounding Jerusalem. And the city was broken and her people were devastated and broken. And Nehemiah answered a call of God to go to Jerusalem and to rally the people to rebuild the wall. And last week we learned of opposition that was happening to those who were building the wall from the outside of the city. And they were um, giving them criticism and terrorist threats, physical threats. So after praying and addressing the people, all of this erupted into Nehemiah calling his people to hold a trowel in one hand, a building tool in one hand, and a spear in the other. And he said, you need to battle. You need to defend where you need to defend. And we're going to build this wall, and we're going to battle with the people, with our opposition. Even though today we have active enemies in this world today who oppose the gospel and who don't believe in what we believe. And every day they are growing in more and more opposition to the name of Jesus. Our God is still with us. So as we look into Nehemiah chapter 5 today, we're going to see opposition continuing in the form of injustice and oppression. It's a, it's a waiting, it's a, it's a weighty and sobering reality that we live in a world where the blades of injustice are sharpened every day. I'm thankful that we have a God of justice and he looks after his people. And I love what Nehemiah chapter 5 is going to be speaking to us today. And I pray and trust in the Holy Spirit that he'll do his work amongst us in this room. Now, I don't want to ruin the end of the story of the book of Nehemiah, so this is sort of a spoiler alert, but I don't think so, really. Um, You know what? The wall does get rebuilt, and that's not too much of a spoiler alert, I'm sure. And I'm sorry if you haven't read ahead yet, but if you were just on the edge of your seat wondering, will this wall get rebuilt, there is this drama, even though we know what's going to happen in the end, there is this drama that's happening. It's going to get rebuilt, and the will of God will happen, and God will accomplish his purposes. In the same way, we know that Jesus Christ, he will return one day, not to rebuild the wall, but to to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And there's, there's going to be this new heaven and new earth. So the question we're looking at today and, and reading through this story is simply not, will the wall be rebuilt? What we're supposed to be looking at today is, is at least in some part, is this. How are the people persevering through this opposition? How are the people, how is the will of God 
faithfully carrying these people through in the rebuilding of this wall. So we know Jesus is coming back. He, he will come back. And the end of the story has already been told. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we live faithfully in a fallen world filled with opposition, filled with tribulation, filled with trouble and brokenness, like all these things that we see in the book of Nehemiah? So it's a, it's a relevant little narrative to us today. And I hope you're seeing that more and more as we journey through this Old Testament book. So as we transition out of chapter 4 and move into chapter 5, one of the things that historically that we learn is that the opposing people to Israel in the work of God in Jerusalem, one of the things that they did, these neighboring countries that were opposing the rebuilding of this wall in the people in Jerusalem, was they cut off trade with Israel, which is something that we see today. Now, if you know anything about world affairs, for example, if the United States disagrees with how another nation treats people, human rights violations, maybe we disagree with their foreign policy too, what we do is we cut off trade with that nation and we encourage allies in other countries to do the same. And the very same thing is happening here for years and years, and that same thing was happening in Nehemiah's day. So there was no external imports coming into the city. And think of it, the fundamental needs like food and clothing and, and all sorts of things. And the trade routes were just shut down. The other thing that's interesting about Nehemiah chapter 5 is Nehemiah chapter 4 ends with sort of this, um, this really rousing uh, description about how Nehemiah called the people to the wall. And they were on the wall, working on the wall day and night. The people stepped up. But there's a problem that we're reading about here today. Some of these folks who were on the wall working on it day and night were farmers. And because they were on the wall working day and night, back home on the farm, no one was really taking care of that. And so they couldn't harvest their crops. And because they couldn't harvest their crops, there was no harvest, and so there was no food. So the picture in Nehemiah chapter 5 on the outside is you have the trade that's cut off. And from the inside, there's no food to put on the table because the farmers are building the wall and they aren't tending to their crops. And so they should be providing the crops for the food for the people and the trade's cut off and they're building the wall. And so there's just this sort of very stressful, very hectic, very devastating situation. It's a desperate situation because there's no harvest, because there's no trade, and there's this famine in the area. So in the middle of this beautiful work that's happening, in the commissioning of God to rebuild this protective wall around the city of Jerusalem, there's this really difficult side to the story that we typically don't think of when we when we think of a sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. When we think about a study through the book of Nehemiah, we're thinking about this, this rallying of the people and the rebuilding of broken things and all of this victory. But the reality is, in any project, in any sort of a commissioning of any large project, there's going to be hardship. And there definitely will be trouble. And the rebuilding for some of these people left them devastated. So the worst thing, though, is not 
the neighboring countries that are opposing them that we read about in chapter 4. It's not even a famine in that that it means that there's not much food in the city. The worst thing, though, in the midst of this stressful situation, there is this disunity. This is the worst thing. The disunity in the discord, in the oppression that rose within the people of God. Worse than the famine is how people begin to treat one another in the midst of this difficulty. One of the things that God intends for us, the Nova Church family, as a congregation, to receive from this text today is how we're meant to treat one another, how we're meant to live together in a faith community, especially in the midst of distressing situation, in the, in the midst of a fallen and broken world around us. What does it look like to persevere in a way that's loving and Christ-like? Some of the questions that we're going to confront today in this chapter, in this text, is are we as a congregation, as a church family, compelled and controlled by what the current culture leans into, how the current culture treats one another? Or are we compelled as a faith community? Are we compelled and controlled by our love for God and our love for one another? Are we living in a way that we treat one another that's distinct from our world today? As a local church, God calls us in a way that's distinct from the world, and God calls us to treat each other differently than the world treats one another. Jesus said this. He said, Others will know that you are my followers by the way you love one another and the way you serve one another. And Jesus took the place of a servant and he said, I loved you in this way. This is how you must love one another. And this will make you distinct from the world around you. The primary ethic of the Christian community is not survival of the fittest. It's not, I'm going to reach my personal goals and success in life by all means necessary, even if that means I'm going to be stepping over you. The ethic of the Christian community could be found in the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So with that background, that backdrop, that backstory, let's take a look at our text today. And we're going to just call this the problems that we find inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The first thing we see is this complaint of the poor and the impoverished. In Nehemiah chapter 5, as your Bibles are open, and look at uh, verse 1 in Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Now let me paint a picture here of what's going on. It, just as things were starting to settle down and they were getting a handle on the battle of the opposition from outside the walls, and as they were building this wall, the outside threats things inside the walls started to heat up. 
There was a big problem. There was a, a big concern. Now, there wasn't just sort of a few disgruntled members of wall builders who were complaining about the color bricks that were on the wall. They weren't doing that. It wasn't just something as simple as the color of carpet or the color of paint on walls. Notice here in verse 1, their wives are mentioned here as well. Because of the Israelites were so busy building the wall, they just didn't have time to handle everything in their lives. So the weight of the things on the farm, the work on the farm, the work in their land, the work in their businesses, was putting the burden on their wives and in their children. And the problem affects the entire tribe of Israel. And it's a serious problem that's going on here. So what are they distressed about? Let's take a look at verse 2. It says, Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So there are several things going on here, and it's just laid out pretty neatly here in, in verses 2, 3, and 4. They're hungry. And, and in this day and age, they ate what they grew. Some were farmers, and they ate what they grew. And perhaps the farmers were away building the wall and, and, and away from their fields, and not because they were working on the wall, they couldn't harvest. One way they had to get grain was they sold their fields so that they had money to buy grain. And this probably doesn't resonate too much with us here in this room. Um, most of us in this room don't rely on what we grow in our backyards for what goes on our table from day to day. If you're hungry, like I was last night, you just go through the drive-thru and get a double-double, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Protein-style, animal-style, three-by-one, extra pickles, extra lettuce. It's my order. That's, the, that's what I do. But there was a famine here, and they were hungry, and they had no money, so they mortgaged their fields to buy food. Not only that, as we read this text, that they had to borrow money to pay the tax on the fields that they just mortgaged off. So they're borrowing money to pay for taxes that they have to pay on their fields that they no longer own. You see the problem here? It's a, it's a royal mess. They don't have food. They've got to borrow money to eat. They can't afford to eat, so they mortgage their fields. And they borrow the money just to pay the taxes on those fields that they don't own. And the more and more and more debt accumulated. And that's not all that was happening in the fields. And if you think that's bad, because that sounds bad, but look at verse 5, because it gets worse. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So they're saying we can't afford to eat, so we're selling our sons and daughters into slavery. We can't do anything about that, because we don't even own the fields that we would harvest from. And there's this downward spiral that we're reading about of more debt and more debt 
with desperation and, and more desperation. And these people are just crying out. So all of this is really tough stuff. But perhaps the worst part of all of this we read about already in verse 1. Now the men and women, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against each other. So it's not just this opposition from outside, it's this internal devastation. It's internal strife inside the tribe. It wasn't this opposition of the enemy. It was oppression from one another. Now, it would be like if some of us in this room, members of our own church family, were loaning money to one another uh, and charging so much interest that we basically own you as slaves. And that's a problem. You, can, you could see that that would be a problem. And it wasn't just ethically wrong, it was sinful. They were, they were disobeying the word of God. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we could read about this in verse 25. It says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money and interest or sell them food at a profit. It's very, very clear here that there was a lot of discord and disunity in the tribe. So the first part of this text is all about the complaint of the impoverished. So let's take a look at Nehemiah's response. And the, the second part of this would be the condemnation of the rich and the powerful. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Now, we see it right here from the very beginning in, in, in verse 1, but we also see it here in verse 6. Nehemiah says, when I heard. It says in verse 1 here, it says in verse 6, he's, he's listening. Nehemiah listened. He listened to the cries of those around him. And just as we have this God in heaven that hears us, we just finished this 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I was just thinking to myself this week as we ended this, this time in, on Wednesday, how God listens to me. And I, and I whine to him sometimes. I'm able to tell him how I feel. I'm able to ask him things that I really think need to happen. And he's listening to me. And here, we read here two times in chapter 5 that Nehemiah listened. He heard their cries. He was this man that was leading, and he still listened. My question to us this morning is this. Are you listening to the cries around you? Are your ears attentive to the voices of those who are hurting are you living your life in a way that you can notice that something's just not right with somebody? Because if, if you live in the South Bay, and I would assume most of you do, and I would also assume that most of you love living in Southern California in the South Bay. Look at today. 
what is it, February 4th. It's going to be about, probably about 78 degrees here in the South Bay today. There's relative safety and security in our region. The jobs are plentiful. There's some great convenience here. I mean, there's stores all around, good restaurants. We're far enough away from the things that we don't want to be around, but we're close enough. You can surf in the morning, you can ski in the afternoon. You can hike in the mountains. You can hike at the beach. You can walk in the neighborhoods in relative safety. We love it here. It's great to be here. But I don't know about you, but every once in a while something happens in my neighborhood. A for sale sign comes up on a house, and I just think, man, they've lived there a long time. What's going on? And then I go over to kind of snoop around, <laughs> ask some questions. I'm saying, man, you're moving. You've lived here a long time. And I find out that someone lost their job and their house is getting foreclosed on. And how tragic that is. But you know what? When all of this was happening months before, I didn't even care to even think about it or even ask about it. Or listen. You ever have a situation where, where you're, friend, you're friends with, with somebody and, and you see them maybe even every Sunday. You see them maybe at your small group. You see them out and, and we're doing stuff, building a house for Mexico and getting a cup of coffee out in the plaza afterward. You sit next to them in, in, in the worship service. And there were two of them, a husband and a wife. And suddenly there's just one. And you don't see the kids as much. A neighbor down the street, maybe. Someone in your kid's classroom. Then you find out that that marriage is breaking up. And that they're separated. And that there's divorce. And you're shocked because you didn't even know. And those are the ones that are close to home. But sometimes you... You read it on the internet or you read in the local paper or you, you hear a, a police report and you find out that there's an assault, there's abuse. Someone carries a gun on campus. There's a murder, a kidnapping. And we say, we never knew. And you're so surprised. But it's everywhere. And if you're listening to cries, if you're keeping your eyes open and ears attentive, we, we see how it affected Nehemiah here. He wasn't just a little bit agitated that things were happening. It says he was angry. He was very angry. And an, it's an appropriate response to the injustices in our world. We should feel something bubble up when we see oppression, and when we hear stories of, of marriages breaking up. Something should bubble up and it would lead us to cry out to God. It would, it, it would lead us. When we hear about poverty, when we hear about racism, when we hear about human trafficking, something needs to bubble up in us. And we need to hear these cries. It should push our buttons because what's supposed to happen isn't happening. It's broken. Something's fractured. And it should move us to righteous anger. Now, Nehemiah 
Notice how he just didn't just fly off a handle and get angry. He didn't just start going nuts and turn over chariots and punch a hole through the wall. He didn't start doing that. What he did here, as you read this, is it says in some of your Bibles, he pondered. He heard their cries and he pondered. He listened. He stopped. Some of your Bibles will say he took counsel. And then he acted. And he confronted the problem. And he went straight to the source and confronted the sin. Let me read to you in verse 7. It's a, it's a long part, all the way to verse 13, but it, it explains his, his actions here. Nehemiah says, So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you were selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, he writes, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. You see, at its very core, oppression leads to the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable, and it's by the strong and the rich. And rather than, than walking in generosity, rather than walking in this way in generosity towards the hurting, rather than walking in unity and helping them out and lending them uh, a, a hand, these wealthy nobles and officials were oppressing their own people. So you have these God's chosen people oppressing God's chosen people who are doing God's work. So what do we do with all of this this morning? How do these verses that we just read here transpire into your own life? See, it's, it's not enough just to read these verses and to say, oh, you poor Israelites, and shame on you, you wealthy guys. I'm glad that we don't have to deal with that here. To some degree, you're right. We don't have to deal with that. We're probably not dealing with a famine in this room. No one in this room is probably selling their children into slavery. But I think there's cries amongst us. I really do. There are some of us in this room that are crying out with certain hurts in injustices. So I think we do have work to do as a Nova Church family. And my hope and prayer is that we don't fall into an attitude that we're, we become sort of a lesser partner to oppression of the weak and the vulnerable. So as I shake myself awake, as I, as I read this and as I was putting all this together, as I shake myself awake to listen to others and open my eyes, to those who are different than me. My hope is 
that all of this will result in praise and glory to our God like we read in that, that last verse, verse 13 here. That it would, it would be, all of this would move us to praise and worship and glory to our God. So here is what we have. The first is this complaint of the poor and the impoverished. The second we read about is the condemnation of the rich and the powerful. And the third part is we see the character of Nehemiah. In the, this last, last section of our text, we learn about Nehemiah's promotion to the governor in this region. Nehemiah just didn't call the people into repentance. He acknowledges his own part in the issues of his people. Take a look at verse 14. He says, Moreover, from the 20th year of, of the king, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. In other words, Nehemiah was a royal appointee of the king. And that came with certain royal privileges, as we're reading here. And again, he acted in a way that the other previous governors didn't act. It was in a very countercultural way. And he laid aside his royal privileges and rights. Verse 17 to verse 19. He says, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to their governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And then he says, he prays, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is what Nehemiah is saying here. It's, it's, it's fascinating, the specifics of what was on the table here. Nehemiah is saying, I could have indulged myself and ate at the governor's table. Instead, I invited 150 people from surrounding communities to share in my food and drink. He was considering the interests of others above himself. And in verse 19, I, I just love how Nehemiah checks in with God in, in dealing with this very stressful situation. Not just opposition from the outside, but disharmony and discord on the inside. And he tells God, I I, I hope you see what's going on. Remember me in all of this. I need your strength. So let's take a look, just in our few closing minutes, how we can apply God's word to us this morning. So as I, as I think about our Nova Church family, I think about the diversity that we have. I, I think about how we can be united in our diversity. Nova is a diverse tribe. I mean, some people... We call the United States, we say it's a melting pot. You've heard that before, right? And, and when I think about a melting pot, you put all these things in and you stir it up and it's indistinguishable from what you were before. And I like to think of the Nova Church family is not so much a melting pot because we're not seeking uniformity. We don't want everyone to be exactly like one another wearing exactly the clothes that we all wear together. We don't have uniforms. We don't all talk the same. 
And I think it's beautiful that we're so diverse in that way. We're not a melting pot. We're like a minestrone soup pot. You know, it's, there's all these things that go in, and, and, it, and because we're together, it makes it taste better. But each of the ingredients is distinct from one another. For you non-soup lovers, we're like a deluxe pizza. I, I mean, it just... <laughs> all kinds of stuff on there, right? And, and you need all of that to make it taste really good. We are a diverse tribe. The words of the Apostle Paul ring out in Philippians chapter 2, that we need to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility. We need that humility. We need to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of you should look to the interests of others. Nova is multi. When someone says, what's Nova Community Church like? I say, we're, we're multi. We're, we're multi-ethnic. We're multicultural. We're multi-generational. We're even multi-economic, socioeconomically. We're, there is some differences with us there. So the question is for us, how do we fight against oppression in the midst here? How do we fight for oppression from within, and fight for unity in our diversity here. And I, and I put down three things. The first is this. The first is to see one another. That you would see one another. To open your eyes and that you would see one another. To acknowledge and affirm how God values each and every person. You see, God looks at you and he doesn't say, I'm going to love, I'm not going to love you for who you are today. God does not say that. God doesn't say, I love you five years from now, what you're going to become. He doesn't say that. He loves you just the way you are in all of the, the imperfection of who you are right now. And that's how we need to see one another, acknowledge one another, and affirm one another. I think of our multi-ethnicity in our culture, and I think we do well with that. But I'm always afraid when someone says, I'm colorblind, because I don't want you to be colorblind. I want you to see me for who I am. And I want you to see that I'm different, and I want you to see that, that, that I'm lovable, and, and as you're lovable, just the way you are. We don't need blindness here. We need an acknowledgement of one another here. I was at a meeting of pastors this last week, and there was a young man, a youth pastor, a new youth pastor in a, in a church in our community here. And we were just talking about the, the, the difference in our ages and things like that. And one of the things he said to me that just, it's, it's just ringing in my mind is this. I asked him about what's it like to be a young guy, the youngest guy on staff, a young guy in the church in the midst of all of these other people. And he said, many times I feel set aside as if I'm still only allowed to eat at the kids' table. He was 23 years old, and sure, he's young. But he says, that's the way I feel. And when I have a voice, when I have an idea... Sometimes he says, I don't have a voice. When I, when I feel like God's leading me to say something, I just get set aside. And I'll tell you what, I think we do that. And we need to stop. 
We need to stop that. And for older adults, too. I think older adults feel set aside. And some older adults, they feel like, I've still got a lot of energy. And I've still got a lot of passion to do God's work. I have this experience of a lifetime that I think I could lend. And that's, it's valuable. And I, and I got to say, we need to stop doing that to older adults, too. Let's see each other the way God sees us. Second thing is this. If we're going to be unified in our diversity, we need to listen to one another. This is perhaps the most important thing, to listen to one another, to open not just your eyes, but to open your ears. I had a real honest, and I'll be honest, it was a very painful talk this week with Garrett and Thomas. And just talking about ministry and life and, and being a, a millennial, being a young adult, and uh, how they honestly shared with me how they feel like people don't listen to the young adult crowd. They said that when the young adults, some of them, for, for them and some of their friends, when they have questions, they feel like some older adults my age just shut them down with a quick answer. A chapter and verse in the Bible is all you need to know. And we walk away. But this generation, they're filled with questions. They're filled, they were telling me, they're filled with um, frustration. They live their lives in this uncertain time. And, and I can't live my life, I, honestly, I, I need to have answers all the time. And so I search, I look for them. But this generation, they just, they, this is their life. And so it's okay to have a conversation and for me, for me not to have an answer to them. And I need to listen. And how hurt many of them feel that people in my generation, my generation that needs to have an answer, that will search for the answer, that will give you the answer even though you don't want to hear the answer, how hurt they feel from, from my generation. And I wanted to deny it. I was trying to think of an answer to, to tell them how they're wrong, which was the wrong thing to do. And... I've got to say, there's even younger that are here, the children and the juniors and the junior hires and the middle, middle schoolers and junior hires and the high schoolers. And we need more connection and we need to listen to one another. We need to listen to one another. The Apostle James writes, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And I'll just say this, my brothers and sisters at Nova Community Church, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. The third is this. To be unified in our diversity, we need to see one another. We need to hear one another, listen to one another. And the third is we need to share life with one another. Not just open your eyes and your ears, but open your hearts to one another. So my encouragement to you here, this is a crowd of people. 
I encourage you to get smaller. And so some of you, right after worship, you shake my hand and you say, have a great weekend. I encourage you to stay for plaza time. Would you stay for plaza time? Will you, will you take a step towards sharing life with one another? Those of you who are, who are into plaza time, you could do that. That's great. Would you go to a small group? Would you go to a Nova class? Would you join the choir? Just show up on a Wednesday at 7 for the choir. You don't even have to have a good voice. If you have a good voice, wonderful. If not, we'll teach you how. It can be learned. If you don't like to just talk, after plaza time, there's a bunch of people in the kitchen that clean coffee pots. It's all about taking a step to smaller And as you see each other, and as you listen well, you'll bring glory to God as he sees you share life together. Let's pray together.